Today's episode is made possible with support from Platinum Bank. Your bank should be solving your problems, not creating them. Platinum Bank partners with Twin Cities executives to help them grow their business. Learn more online at PlatinumBankMN.com. Platinum Bank, providing a means to a dream. You know, it's so funny because being at General Mills, we'd launch a product under the Cheerios brand and get into 25,000 stores within three months. And I, naive, just assumed that whenever you launch a product, you walk into Target, they say yes, it's in every store. <laughs> and let me tell you, that is, not, yeah, that is not how it works. From Twin Cities Business, this is By All Means, a show about innovation, drive, and purpose, and the leaders who make business work in Minnesota. I'm Allison Kaplan, your host and editor-in-chief of Twin Cities Business Magazine, coming to you from the studios of our presenting sponsor, the University of St. Thomas Schultz School of Entrepreneurship, cultivating the next generation of problem solvers and innovators. The school offers undergraduate and graduate programs in entrepreneurship and corporate innovation, as well as community resources to support new ventures, family businesses, and corporate entrepreneurs. And now, by all means. Busy Coffee isn't like the other coffee brands. No coffee shops, no single-serve bottles or cans in convenience stores. Busy, that's B-I-Z-Z-Y, is singularly focused on a fast-growing segment of the coffee business, cold brew. Co-founders Alex French and Andrew Healy, who refer to themselves as the Busy Boys, left solid day jobs to jump full force into entrepreneurship, even though it meant moving back home with their parents. The company caters to price-conscious home brewers, selling economy-sized brew bags and concentrates to make your own batches of cold brew coffee at home. Busy launched on Amazon before the big brands recognized the opportunity, and today it is Amazon's best-selling cold brew brand, with a growing reach in grocery stores as well. The brand's success has come with its share of failures and mistakes, but those missteps only seem to fuel the Busy Boys' drive. Alex French is a born entrepreneur. It's in his blood, along with a considerable amount of caffeine. I wake up and I have this nice little six ounce shooter that I'll fill as I prep for the morning. And then I'll typically get in and fill two, three, four, five, maybe depending on the day. And today we're working on some new blends and we did yesterday. So then there's some incremental shots here and there of, <laughs> of coffee. So it could be anywhere from 30 to 60 ounces in a day. So we're expecting a lot of excitement in this interview. We got a lot of energy at Busy Coffee, that's for sure. That is a lot of energy. And all all cold brew that you're drinking, I would assume? Yeah, pretty much exclusively. I probably haven't had a hot cup of coffee in six, seven years. Dang. Uh, unless I really had to. It was my only option. Yeah. There's a choice. I will. I will never go hot. Even when it's 10 below, you're drinking cold. Uh, yeah, you know, I just, for whatever reason, I like I like the cold brew. I like the way it makes me feel. Well, it, it, it makes perfect sense given your business, which is what we're here to talk about. But before we get to busy, let's go all the way back. Set the scene for us. What was childhood like? Did you always have an interest in business? Yeah, so I grew up in, in um, just kind of the northern suburbs of Minneapolis and New Brighton. And I, I, the way that I like to picture it is I grew up watching the show Recess. And for any listeners that remember the show, I was the hustler kid. <laughs> and so I was always selling something, doing a job to make a buck. So 
I was buying and selling Beanie Babies. I was buying action figures and selling them on eBay. Uh, I would be mowing lawns, shoveling driveways, um, really since I was probably in middle school. So where that do you think kind you, of always been. Where do you think you got that that instinct? I mean, were your parents in, in business? Did they instill that in you? No, you know, that's a great question, and I have no idea. It's just innate within me. Um, none, no entrepreneurs in my family, um, immediate or otherwise. Um, so, yeah, I just kind of, for whatever reason, it's just a part of me. What was your most successful venture as a kid? You know, probably the Beanie Babies, um, <laughs> just because the, the prices went up so high and it was a fixed price to buy them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we were able to get in low. And of course, I had my mom driving me to all the stores and, and helped me when I was in school finding the good ones. And, and you know, the price just went up. But So there was just a ton of margin there. But of course, you know, relative to a real business, you know, we were probably hundreds of dollars. Uh, but at the time, you know, that was that was big money. For sure. Absolutely. Do you hang on to any just in case they, they have a, a renaissance? You know, we sold all the ones that were worth value, <laughs> but I think I have one or two kind of mementos in my uh, sure. kind of time, my time box from childhood. Good to hang on to those. So mm-hmm. um, so you you went to St. Thomas with a plan to go into entrepreneurship. Was that what you wanted to study? Yeah, that was my plan. Um, I always knew I wanted to be a business owner in some capacity. And so I did go in with the idea of being an entrepreneurship major. And that was the path that I chose. Um, With that, though, as I mentioned, no entrepreneurs in my family, uh, very risk averse. And I did come in with some extra credits. And so I had the opportunity to do a a dual major. So I added finance because Mm. my parents were terrified of me starting a business with no experience. Hmm. Um, so I also did go down that finance path. The thing I always wonder when when people come at business knowing that they want to be an entrepreneur is it feels like it's got to be so much pressure when the, the entrepreneurship comes before the idea. Were you constantly looking for an idea? Constantly. I remember when I was, I did a study abroad and I was just, I'll never forget this flight I took. I don't know where I was going, but I just had this, this necessary motivation to just write down an idea and and come back. And I I told myself that when I got back from my study abroad, I was starting a business. And yeah, it honestly was very stressful. And for no reason, I just did it to myself. (laughs) So did you did you keep a a notebook full of ideas? And and when did some good ones start to surface? I've, I've always had a notebook of ideas, more scratch paper than a notebook until there was technology and I could use Evernote. Um, I didn't have a good idea until busy. Um, I've had so many <laughs> ideas that I've tried that have failed. Buying and selling things is relatively easy, but starting from scratch, um, you know, I didn't hit anything successful uh, until busy. And I can assure you, I've tried you know, 10, 20 ideas. <laughs> I want to talk about one of them that, that did predate busy. But but before we do that, so, so you graduated and were you feeling, I mean, you graduated from college, you, you got a double major. Were you feeling like a success, like you're going to go out and, and you know, you, you got a good job or were you already feeling like, oh, my gosh, I got to find that idea? So I did the entrepreneurship program and the last class is a capstone. And so you have to write a business plan. And I didn't have a good idea, but my actually current best friend and business partner, Andrew, his roommate approached me with an idea. It was a thing called a skim board, which is kind of like surfing, but easier. 
And so we had a business plan, uh, wrote that up, and my goal and what I was planning on doing after college was to launch that company and move to California. So I actually didn't have a job. I didn't even think about having a job. I told everyone I was starting this business. I graduate, and I'm kind of the sales and marketing person where the guy that approached me was the product guy, and he just never made the product. So (laughs) three months later, I have no job and I have no business. Ouch. So, so I so yeah, I basically was like, holy crap, I am an entrepreneurship major. I am a failed entrepreneur. Within seconds of graduating, uh-huh. I got to get a job. And so I, I took the first job I could, which was at Best Buy. Did you like it? No. No. <laughs> I'm, no. Uh, you know, I'm just an entrepreneur at heart. I love selling and creating. And I didn't fully grasp how much of a cog you are in such a big organization. Mm-hmm. I was doing something called demand forecasting and I was in this very small niche of a category which was mobile phone accessories and I was just looking at spreadsheets all day. And although I'm okay at math, um, that gets old very quick. Mm-hmm. But then you had an opportunity that came up pretty quickly uh, to go to General Mills, and you and you did make that move to another big company. Yep, I, I did, and this was a much more uh, strategic decision, I will say. Um, while I was at Best Buy, again, Andrew, current business partner, and I started a company on the side. It was called The Lifty, and it was a snowboarding accessory. And like everything before Busy, it did fail. But through the process, um, again, finance major, I learned that I actually love marketing and branding. And so um, I was looking for a new job. Again, not very pleased with just staring at spreadsheets all day. And there was an opportunity to be a marketing analyst for Cheerios. And so I applied to that job and fortunately got it. And what was that like? Cheerios, you, you've got a brand that definitely has made it. You know, it, it's the biggest brand at General Mills. So there's a ton of pressure and eyeballs on it. I was under the assumption I was going to be doing marketing, but again, basically staring at spreadsheets all day, (laughs) analyzing our marketing campaigns and their performance and reporting that up to leadership. Mm -hmm. And as kind of a, even though I'm creative, I still enjoy analyzing data. Um, So that was actually quite fun. And I learned a ton about the food industry, Mm. being with such a large, successful brand, doing Super Bowl commercials. I got to learn kind of how um, a creative process works and working with an agency and then analyzing the performance of that campaign. So it was great. Um, and I learned a ton. And one of the things that I love so much about General Mills is it is an incredible company culture and they hire the smartest people that work the hardest. And it really helped me learn how to be a professional mm-hmm. and be the best version of myself as, as a professional uh, in, in the career. So it was a wonderful experience. I, I learned a tremendous amount. It's funny, Alex, you know, I mean, a lot of people would, would, would give the advice that after college, or it certainly used to be this way, you know, after college with a business degree, even if you want to start your own thing, eventually you should go get that Fortune 500 experience. That used to be the path. You used to have Mm -hmm. to do that. I think that's less true today. But given that that's how it worked out for you, is that what you would suggest to others? You know, if someone's like me, where they know they're going to be a business owner, there's no question in my mind, even if busy were to fail, I'm going right back into starting another business without skipping a beat. If you have that in you, I think you only learn to be an entrepreneur by being an entrepreneur. You really can't teach it. And so my advice to those individuals 
is to absolutely go as fast as you can. You will fail for sure, but the faster you fail, the faster you succeed. And I think doing that right out of the gates is, is helpful because at the end of the day, it's harder to start a business when you're older. You have more bills, maybe you have a mortgage, maybe you have a, a partner or children, and the risk becomes significantly greater where when you're just a single person, guy or girl, um, you can take those risks and it's a lot easier. So I do always recommend to just start something as quickly as you can. Hmm. Um, you did have a really interesting opportunity while you were still at General Mills. You moved from Cheerios to 301 Inc. Tell us about that. That was the coolest. So 301 Inc. It was essentially an internal startup incubator. And I had done the lifty. I was working on busy coffee on the side, which at the time was called cause coffee. And so, you know, being at Cheerios, a ton of eyeballs on the analysis. It was very high pressure. It was very buttoned up as a culture. And there was this other division, 301 Inc. And it was in, in Northeast Minneapolis in this old grain building. And it was cool. And it was like a garage band. <laughs> and it was people starting businesses as entrepreneurs or as they would say, an intrapreneur. And so I did an informational interview with one of my peers that was on that team and instantly fell in love with the group, the people, the work that they were doing. And it just so happened that one of the one of my peers was leaving to get his MBA and a spot opened up. And I was fortunately able to slide in there. And my first task was they had a business called Nibbler, which was a snacking subscription company, <laughs> which was an incredible experience because leading up to this, I had no internet experience. I didn't know what customer acquisition was and churn and retention. And so I was able to learn all these really valuable tactics, which have become invaluable with busy um, through this role. And so I did that for about nine months. Phenomenal, phenomenal job, phenomenal team, um, really sharp. But what they found is that it was very difficult to be an entrepreneur. It's very hard, especially with all the challenges of being in a large organization where you have to go fight for money and fight for resources and things just move slower. So mm -hmm. after that first nine months, they had actually transitioned from starting businesses to investing in them. Mm -hmm. And that was the coolest because again, I was a finance major and an entrepreneurship major. And so I got to really mesh those two passions of mine of investing and starting. And we basically built the framework for what now is 301 Inc., which is investing into other food businesses that are, you know, that can essentially someday be acquired by General Mills and, and rolled into the fold. And so through that, got a great understanding of what is a good investable business, what do large corporations look for, um, in a startup, and then how do you integrate within them? So wonderful experience. Yeah, I mean, what what great perspective for somebody who's thinking of going out and starting something on their own, which is exactly what you did. So you mentioned that you were already kind of sketching out the idea for Busy. What was the initial thought, and how did that come to you? Yeah, so a lot of it came from the failure that was the lifty, and. I try to always put things into a framework model and, you know, we did a debrief. Okay. This company failed. Why did it fail? Well, there was two primary things. People weren't searching for it. And then once we got someone to buy it, they were only going to buy one. And so we said to ourselves for the next business, it has to be consumable and people have to just be actively searching for it. 
And so we knew we kind of had this loose framework, this loose idea of what the business was going to be. And I'm at General Mills. So, okay, food is consumable. And I was at Best Buy before. So I kind of knew retail. And so it was, okay, what, what are the things that Andrew and I like? Well, we like drinking coffee. We like drinking beer. We like meal prepping. So we kind of looked at a few different segments. And this was in 2013, probably. We were making cold brew ourselves at home, fed up with paying $5 for a cup of coffee. <laughs> and we just, we just put it into Google Trends and we searched cold brew coffee. And we were seeing that it was growing about 100% every year in the search volume. And so we said, wow, people are really searching for this. It's in this massive coffee category, which is $15 billion. And it's really millennials that are consuming it. Okay, and as wait, a millennial, cu- couple things. What, for, because it is, as you just said, very millennial for any, for any of our older listeners who maybe are like, cold brew, what? Coffee is coffee. What, is, what distinguishes cold brew? Yeah, so cold brew is, it's cold brewed, so which means it's a process. So it's the opposite of espresso. So espresso, you use steam and a very fine ground coffee, and it creates a very bitter, acidic, strong coffee. Cold brew is on the opposite end of the spectrum. You use a coarse ground coffee, and you brew it at room temperature for 18 hours. And what, what that results in is a coffee product that is lower in acidity because it doesn't extract the tannic acids due to the colder water temperature. So what that means in layman terms is it's smoother and it's more flavorful. Okay, so it isn't just a matter of putting ice cubes in your coffee pot. No, that, <laughs> that, is, that is iced coffee, and we've spent years educating consumers. Um, but there is a very distinct difference. Iced coffee is hot coffee that you cool down. Cold brew is an actual process where you use room temperature water and a coarser grind, which makes it smoother and less acidic. Okay, so you and Andrew, and, and, and Andrew, meanwhile, does he have a day job too at this yeah, point? Yeah, Andrew, yep, absolutely. We're very complimentary. He's very technical. So he's a mechanical engineer by trade, mm. went to the University of Minnesota. He worked in fluid systems engineering at Pentair. Then he was a project manager at Spectrum Plastics. And then he became an R&D engineer uh, at St. Jude, now Abbott, working in the medical device space. Wow. Um, okay. Yeah. So you so guys a... you guys have real significant day jobs, and you're, you're doing cold brew on the side at home. What makes you think that you can turn yours into something? I mean, I realize it's a big industry, but isn't that almost more daunting? There are so many brands. It's pure naivete. We just didn't fully understand how challenging coffee was going to be. Um, but the kind of the root of what we thought to ourselves is this is a new product in a large category, but this is a new consumer that's entering coffee really for the first time. They're starting with cold brew and they don't want to drink Folgers. They don't want to drink their parents' coffee. They want a brand that resonates with their own personal belief system. And we thought to ourselves, we have an authentic founder story. We are the target market. And we think that we can at least take a, a small market share of this prize. Again, we were focused on search. And so we said to ourselves, let's go sell something on the internet where the next generation is shopping, where they want a product and a brand that resonates with themselves. Now, at this point, had you ever ordered cold brew from other brands on the internet? Was that even a thing? You know, we didn't. It wasn't even around at the time. You couldn't buy it on the internet. But what you could do and what we were doing is we were buying people's coffee beans, whole bean, 
on the internet and then we would grind them ourselves and make our own cold brew with those uh, coffee beans. Okay. Um, so there weren't other brands that were specifically special. I mean, did, did Starbucks have a version of a cold brew then that they were bottling? Were, were, what, who was the competition? The only real competitor at the time was a brand called Chameleon Cold Brew out of Texas. And they had started probably three years before us, um, and they were just a bottled uh, cold brew coffee product in a glass bottle. Mm-hmm. This is what year? This is, uh, they probably launched, I think, in 2011. And you launched three years later. Yep. That's when we started doing it ourselves. We left our jobs in September of 2015 as kind of the official start date, if you will. So how much work had you done before you left your day job? We had done a lot. Um, we'd probably brewed, you know, thousands of gallons. At this point, we had a commercial kitchen space we were renting. We were brewing on nights and weekends, testing every variable. Again, Andrew being a mechanical engineer, very quantitative, very technical. So we had looked at everything from the grind size to the brew temperature to the brew time to the bottle to the package to the processing technique. So by the time we left our jobs, we'd probably been doing it part time for a year and a half. Had you sold it or were you just making it? We had we had gone to some um, events, so we were like kegging it, selling it into offices. We were going to like food truck fairs and selling it by the glass. But it was more of an R and D with the goal of creating a packaged product that we would be able to sell in stores and online. So by the time we quit our jobs in September of fifteen, we'd both spent about twenty five thousand dollars each on research, development, working with co packers, doing production runs. Um, testing products. So we were pretty far in at this point. What kind of reaction did you get from from the earliest uh, drinkers of the product? People loved it. It was still really new. And we were, you know, focused on the key consumer market. So when we were selling kegs, we were selling them to tech startups. And it was these engineers that were working 18 hour days, you know, they're drinking so much coffee, it's crazy. And, And people honestly loved it. It got to the point where our customers couldn't afford their employees' habit because they were going through so much of it. <laughs> and, you know, we were so successful, we shot ourselves in the foot that we couldn't even use the customers because their CFO said, we, gotta, we can't have this habit. This is a $1,000 a week habit. We got we to gotta kind of dial this back. So early lessons for us um, in that kind of office coffee space was people love the product. We knew that, um, but it wasn't the right sales channel for us. Hmm. Um, do, do, silly question, but does cold brew have a similar amount of caffeine as hot brewed coffee? If, if it's brewed properly, it should be more caffeinated. Mm. Um, some people will water it down. We use a measure called TDS, total dissolved solids. And that is similar to, let's say, ABV for alcohol. Uh, we shoot for a measure of 1.35. Um, hot coffee is around 1.2. Um, but that's going to have probably 20 to 30% more caffeine, depending on the origin and, and how diluted it is. So is that why the young people like it? I've, I've heard this before. We've actually talked about it right here on the podcast with other coffee entrepreneurs that the younger consumers tend to favor cold drinks over hot drinks. I know I'm old because I still like my hot latte. What can I tell you? So <laughs> what is it? Why do young people want to drink cold coffee? It's trendy. Honestly, I think that's the first and foremost. Um, It is an energy source. It's similar to 
um, energy drinks or sodas where it's that similar kind of mouthfeel. Um, obviously, it's not carbonated, but it's, it's cold. It feels the same. And it's just it's trendy. And it, so if you see someone walking down the street, it might be negative 20. They're still going to have that iced latte or that <laughs> cold brew just because it's cool. It's trendy and they want to put it on Instagram. Um, also, you know, it is just smoother. So I think there's a there's a, a product benefit where you can drink a lot of it. You're not going to get gut rot. It doesn't feel as harsh on your teeth either because it's not as um, acidic. So I think those are a couple of the reasons why. But I think, frankly, a lot of it is just trendy. Hmm. Do you? Well, speaking of trendy, though, do, do trends come and go? Do you worry about that? That that these, you know, hot could become cool again. You know, I, I really don't think so. Worse, everything that we've seen in the data would support that the future of coffee is cold. Um, you know, one of the things that they taught me at General Mills is there's a very big difference between a trend and a fad. And, you know, diets are fad. Those will come and go. There's going to be a new one. There's going to be a new group, group fitness style. Um, cold coffee is a trend, just hmm. like plant-based. Mm-hmm. And we, we believe that in the future it's going to be, you know, right now it's probably 10% of the market. I think in the next 10 years it's going to be 50% of the market. Wow. Wow. Um, so, okay, you, you try the office thing, it works, but that's not where you're going to make your money. Where did you take it next? Yeah, so at this point, it's September, we're kind of in, it's go or no go. Andrew and I are completely out of money. Personally, we have nothing. And these were our personal savings. Um, no one else's money but our own. We had tried to raise money from local angel investors to keep it going. But for whatever reason, uh, no one wanted to invest. Maybe it was we didn't know what we were doing. Um, you, so you, we went. You couldn't use your connections at 301 Inc. Nope they they had a hard rule against coffee. In hindsight, I'm an idiot for not launching a soup or a baking mix or a bar. But <laughs> hindsight's 2020, <laughs> obviously here. Um, so no no real connections here. Um, couldn't make anything happen. So we did the last resort, which was we applied to a bunch of accelerators or kind of startup incubators. And we got into one called Foodex out of New York. But the, the catch was we had to quit our jobs and move out there in seven days. When we get back, how that accelerator program helped Busy get ahead. Today's episode is made possible with support from Platinum Bank. Is your bank a partner or simply a provider? In today's environment, businesses need a bank that can move quickly and act creatively. Platinum Bank understands the Twin Cities market, partnering with clients to overcome challenges and capitalize on opportunities. Their financial products and services are tailored to meet the unique needs of your organization. To learn how Platinum Bank can be an asset to your business, visit www.platinumbankmn.com. Platinum Bank providing a means to a dream. We pick up with Alex French and his partner, Andrew Healy, in New York, trying to finally get some traction for Busy Coffee. We got into one called Foodex out of New York, but the the catch was we had to quit our jobs and move out there in seven days. Mm. And so we got in, uh, they gave us, I think it was something like $30,000. And for anyone who understands how expensive consumer packaged goods are, that's nothing. Mm -hmm. Um, But it was more than $0 for us, and we had nothing. And we were $50,000 in at this point. So we decided to pack up. We quit our jobs, and we moved out to New York. And through that process, we sprinted. Now we're able to work full-time. So things moved significantly faster. 
we were able to select the correct co-packer, create a shelf-stable product. And again, we you know, knew that we wanted to focus on search. So then right after the program ended uh, in January of, of 16, we focused all of our efforts on launching on Amazon. And how is that a hard thing to do, to get your product on Amazon? You know, we were relatively early, I guess, 2016. That's, you know, five years ago now. Um, it was not easy to get started by all means, but we were fortunate that while I was at Best Buy, I made a lot of very strong connections with people. And a lot of those people got recruited to work at Amazon. Mm. And those people worked at Amazon. And then they left to start their own consulting agency to get started on Amazon. And so one of my really good friends had left and started his own Amazon consulting agency and he helped us launch. Um, and so that was in about March. And then um, there was no one there. And so we basically took 100% of the demand of people that were searching for cold brew coffee. And people really were searching on Amazon for cold brew coffee. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, within a couple of months, we were doing five figures a month on Amazon. Wow. So did you put all your eggs in that basket? I mean, did you even try to get into stores or were you just focused on the Amazon business? Oh, yeah, we tried to get into stores and it was a, a complete failure. We, you know, it's so funny because being at General Mills, we'd launch a product under the Cheerios brand and get into 25,000 stores <laughs> within three months. Mm -hmm. And I, naive, just assumed that whenever you launch a product, you walk into Target, they say yes. In every store. <laughs> kind of like that, that, right? <laughs> yeah, that is not how it works. Yeah. They couldn't care less about your product or your company. But we did get meetings um, because of the background, because everyone knew cold brew was going to be the thing. We got a ton of meetings. We met with Target. Uh, but the problem is we had one product. We had one skew, one flavor, one size. And it was built for the internet. And again, at the time, I didn't understand how different selling on the internet versus selling on a shelf is. What so, do you mean by that? How was it built for the internet? It, it was a very specific size. So it was a 16-ounce bottle. It was shelf-stable. Um, it had a, a different label and different marketing strategy because we were able to kind of Photoshop stuff. And it was built to be Instagram-focused and not pop off the shelf. Mm. And so what we learned is, well, if you have a shelf-stable product, which means it doesn't require refrigeration, they're not going to put it next to perishable products in the cold case. Mm. And so it ended up sitting, and we did get into some stores like Kowalski's and some Lunds and Byerly's, and it just ends up sitting on a shelf, but no one is searching for a cold brew coffee in the coffee aisle. They're looking for it in... Uh, the grab and go section or in the dairy aisle. Right. And then, and then another major concern is we had a 16 ounce bottle, which, you know, kombucha comes in a 16 ounce bottle, but it's important to know this was a concentrate. And so consumers would grab it. And for whatever reason, it was people were paying $9 for this <laughs> and they would drink it straight out of the bottle, but it was intended to be diluted because we wanted to focus on having a high price to weight ratio for the internet where we could inform consumers that this is a concentrate. You must add water to it. But mm. we learned that consumers don't really read the package. <laughs> and so, so you had a lot of really we, shaky consumers calling you. <laughs> that is exactly what happened. And so we couldn't get into most stores. The stores we got in were a complete failure. For the price, the packaging size, the concentration level, 
it did not work. But it, but it, the the idea of selling the concentrate worked okay on Amazon. It worked beautifully. Okay. We we were selling you know pallets a month just on Amazon, and it was so great. We would say order our co-packer. They would ship it to Amazon. They wouldn't even touch the product. All we would have to do is do a you know little um, little advertisement that basically just says "Buy Busy Cold Brew," and again, there was just no one selling online. Everyone was focused on the retail stores, and so we were able to basically ride that wave for the next three years before there was really any competition. So you had to make a decision: Do you just focus on that, on the online business, or do you create other products that are going to work in store settings? That's that's right. And we, again, didn't understand how expensive it was. So even though the business was generating a healthy amount of revenue, we were still losing money every month. And at this point, Andrew and I are both living with our parents. Um, we're not paying ourselves, and we're losing money every month. So we go back into the well and we try and raise money and rightfully so no one invested because we were selling a cold brew coffee concentrate on Amazon and it failed in retail stores. So all of a sudden we're like, holy crap. Okay. We're, we're about to run out of money. This thing is going to fail. How are your parents feeling at this point? Oh gosh, they're not happy. Um, (laughs) I had a great job at General Mills. Andrew had a great job at St. Jude. And here we are back living with our parents, completely broke. Mm-hmm. I remember at one point I had $11 in my checking account. Mm-hmm. I hope you were at least doing the dishes and helping out around the house. I was doing everything I could <laughs> and, and working 100 hours a week. Um, so we were out of money and we needed to do something. And what we learned for a few select customers, and it's important to note it was just a few select customers, they knowingly were taking shots of our concentrate because they were too busy to mix it and take it on the go. They just wanted a, a quick shot of caffeine. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the entrepreneur light bulb went off in my head and I said, oh my gosh, five hour energy is a billion dollar product. Mm-hmm. Cold brew is exploding. Let's launch a cold brew coffee shot. Mm. I bet you we can raise money for that. And we did. And we raised hmm. over a we raised over a million dollars to develop and market a cold brew coffee shot to compete with Five Hour Energy. Wow! Because you were comparing because they understood that comparison to the Five Hour Energy product. That's exactly right. It was crystal clear to them how it was going to be big. They could look at that product and they could look at Starbucks marketing cold brew coffee, and it was very logical understanding to say, yeah. That, that could work and that could be big. It's it's a cleaner, plant-based, buzzword, buzzword, buzzword yeah. energy shot. So interesting. So where did you raise that money? We raised it um, primarily from family offices out of state. So mm-hmm. we had the same challenges, no real local investment in early stage food companies, despite the background and the network here. Um, no one was interested. So we did raise that money um, from a large family office in Chicago and then randomly a German family office that has a hub in um, California. Okay. So you, did you develop this shot? We developed it um, for about nine months, blood, sweat, and tears. This the cutest packaging. I'm actually looking at one in my room right now. And it was instantly a commercial failure. Why? And what we learned is that the consumer that's drinking five-hour energy, for the most part, is a trucker. 
generally speaking, not always, but they're the highest user of that product. And when you think about a better for you option, you're marketing to the same consumer that wants a better for you option. Well, the thing is, the trucker doesn't care about a better for you option. <laughs> and so we put it next to the five hour energies and just nobody wanted it. Hmm. And because it wasn't rooted off of a true customer need. When I think about all other successful businesses, there's a problem and a solution. And in this circumstance, no one cared for a healthier coffee-based five-hour energy. What so about within, college students? I would, I would think you'd have you know, young professionals and college students who would have gone for it. You know, you, you'd think so. But there's all these other alternatives that make coffee a very challenging industry. There was uh, this product called Stoke. And a college student is broke. And we were selling ours for, I think it was 250 or 3 bucks. But there was this little tiny coffee shot that was sold in kind of like a, those little peel creamer tubs. And they were selling them for 10 cents a unit. Mm. And so competing on price, you know, there was just no way we could win. So we, we tried for about a year to just force it to be successful. And at the end of the day, it, it ended up failing. And we, we did have to, to wind that product line down, which was tough. Um, I personally you know, was very emotionally connected to the launch and success of that product. And when it failed, it was, it was just heartbreaking because we had spent so much time and so much energy, again, not taking a salary, living with our parents, and it just didn't work. And did you um, use up all that money you had raised? Fortunately, we did not. And so we, I think we had maybe 100000 left. And we said, okay, the concentrate worked. We just had some issues. It was the wrong price and it was the wrong size. Let's fix that. Let's relaunch it. So we did that. The next thing that we did, and this was the most important thing that we had ever done, is we said to ourselves, what did we do when we started making cold brew ourselves and why did we love the product? And we realized that there's this massive consumer segment of people that love making cold brew themselves. Hmm. And so we took the coffee that we were making to use our concentrate and we just packaged it and sold it as a do-it-yourself option with a focus on the do-it-yourself enthusiast, similar to your craft beer home brewer. Mm -hmm. And that instantly became the bestseller. You're kidding. Now at this point, at this point it's mid-2018. Starbucks has their products into the market. There's a ton of competition. And we surpass every single one of them. And it's easier. We're not shipping liquids. Um, it's easier to market. No one is targeting this segment. And it's big. And so we instantly become the best seller. And then we're able to on carry Amazon? that on Amazon. Yep, That product is still only sold on Amazon um, and on our site now, but only on the internet. And we built a community around people that just love to make cold brew. Because as we kind of mentioned earlier, it was primarily focused on millennials. But at this point, it's three, four years later. We have 60-year-old customers. We have 40-year-old customers. And they're all kind of drinking it for different reasons. But it was very difficult to find a community. It's not, you know, we're not going after the yoga market. We're not going after the corporate employees because everyone drinks coffee. But there was this sub-segment of consumers that just loved making cold brew coffee. And we had arguably the best tasting blend that they loved. And at that point, we were able to take that success and then launch new flavors. So we then we launched a light roast, 
We launched a dark roast. Then we launched an espresso blend and a breakfast blend. And then at that point, we finally had a community of people that we could really communicate with and figure out well, what are their problems. And one of the major ones was people would start making it themselves and they would say, gosh, this is a pain in the butt. It takes 18 hours. I just want a simple, ready-to-drink product. It's a great price that's really delicious that I can get at my grocery store. And while everyone was trying to create a canned single-serve product, we focused on the at-home user in a large format, similar to a jug of milk or a, a jug of juice. And now, now, this surprises me, because especially because you're thinking about that, that young person, that tech employee, they're on the go. Why would they want something that's like that you keep at home? You know, it, it fundamentally comes down to price. And we just looked at the market and we, we got something called Nielsen data, which is essentially sell through data of mm -hmm. what, what products sell. And I learned all about this in my General Mills job. And we just saw that the majority of coffee that's sold is the cheapest coffee on the market. So Folgers is still top. Maxwell House is still on top just because it's the cheapest. So what we learned is that if we can get a lower price per serving to the consumer, that's where the largest section or largest market of the opportunity is going to be. And so we just said, okay, we're, single serve is very competitive. It's very challenging. We're just going to focus on the at-home consumption. And it was very successful because, again, what we found out is consumers are frugal and they want the best value possible. So if they have an option to buy a 48-ounce bottle for $5, that's going to give them six cups of coffee versus going to Starbucks or going to the grocery store and paying four or five bucks for a can or a cup, they're typically going to choose the large format every time. Mm-hmm. And then they can pour it into their cool-looking uh, coffee exactly. containers and be on the go. Get, hop on it. their bicycles and mm -hmm. go off to the office. Uh, or when we, back when we went to the office. Um, now, I would imagine, well, so for, okay, so to, 2018, you figure this out, you introduce this. Are you able to move out of your parents' house at this point? Yeah, we moved out of our parents' house. Um, you know, Andrew and I are still roommates to this day. Um, so, yeah, we got a, a still a cheap, but we finally paid ourselves a salary, minimal. Um, haven't still taken a raise in several years. <laughs> but we're able, we were able to get uh, an apartment. We, at this point, have now brought production in-house. So we don't roast. We work with a network of roasters, but we do process the coffee into a liquid. So at this point, we now have a brewery. Um, there was a period where we were working at with Kieran Foliard out of food building. Mm -hmm. um, so we did that for about nine months, outgrew that space. And then in August of 2018, we built our own brewery in Brooklyn Center. Mm. And what is now, what is your best-selling product at this point? Is it that concentrate that you just pour at home? Is it the the bags of coffee? What is it? The, from a total units perspective, we sell more 48-ounce bottles. These are the large, ready-to-drink bottles. Our medium roast, which is the brewed version of our best seller on Amazon. And they're pretty close neck and neck from kind of a revenue standpoint. Um, but we're moving through a lot of units of that ready-to-drink kind of grocery product that's sold in the dairy case. 
And that's something that we can get into another. We're only in about a thousand stores and there's about 20,000 that we can get into. So we think that is the, the future of the category and certainly the future of our business. And the grocers understand that product. They understand it and they are excited. Um, that category grew 57 percent year over year. And so they are trying to create as much space as they possibly can and make as much money because as we're seeing, they're seeing the same trends and, and the future of coffee is cold. So they're carving out space from juice, from tea, from milk and giving it to cold brew and iced coffee. So you were in this good position. You've kind of figured it out and got your groove. And then along comes the pandemic and suddenly we're all drinking coffee at home, whether it's hot or cold or whatever, because everybody's staying home. How did that impact Busy? We took a big hit right away. Um, we you know, have always been running out of money. So we were actually doing private label manufacturing for a coffee shop chain. So if you were to walk into their coffee shop and order their cold brew we were actually the ones that were making it Mm. and they would just sell it to the consumer so we were doing that and that was pretty decent sized business for us um of course when the pandemic struck every one of those coffee shops closed and that business went to absolutely zero Mm -hmm. so that was tough um but on the flip side because those coffee shops were closed those consumers only had one option, and that was to consume it at home. Mm-hmm. And all of our other products are focused on at-home consumption. We don't do any single-serve, no grab-and-go. And because we arguably have the highest quality product at as close to the lowest price as possible, we saw a pretty large surge in demand. So basically from February uh, 2020 to April 2020, our Amazon business tripled. Hmm. And that was, again, just for the do-it-yourself consumer. And right as we were picking up steam with our grocery business, um, of course, the, the pandemic caused everything to go crazy for about two months. But then with the coffee shops closed, the grocers said, I need to take all of the coffee I can possibly get because little known fact, coffee shops is a $47 billion category, wow. while grocery store coffee is only $15 billion. Hmm. So when these coffee shops shut down, a $47 billion shifted into online and to grocery stores, which is unique to every other category in the grocery store. Mm-hmm. So they said, I need to carry whatever I can get. And fortunately, we had been bugging them for two years to carry us. And the time came where they needed our product. And so we were able to get into about another 800 stores within just a, you know, a few short months. It's, it's easy now to look back and reflect and, and see how all the trends happened, or how it all rolled out over the course of, of, that, of the crazy year that was 2020. But did you realize at the time, I mean, did, did you think early on this could actually be a big opportunity for us? Could you see that? You know, we certainly always hoped and prayed that we were going to be able to build a successful large company. Did we know that everyone was going to be working from home? And we were going to have a product that was focused on at-home consumption and thinking of it in that very specific way? Absolutely not. Mm-hmm. Um, we certainly focused on at-home consumption, but truly that was only because we failed so hard with the coffee shop line. <laughs> and we said, we are never doing single-serve coffees again. Oh, what a bloodbath. That is so hard. <laughs> so because we had failed so miserably in the past, 
we had narrowed our focus to multi-serve at home, which was, you know, as a result, helped us through the pandemic to be quite successful. Did you have did you have any issues supply chain? I mean, your your manuf- you've got the manufacturing set up right here in the Twin Cities. Were you able to just meet the demand, or were there any issues? You know, I'll got to give credit to Andrew, my co-founder here. He runs the supply chain, and we had virtually zero hiccups. Um, we had one week of down production. And that was purely because of um, there's this thing called a preform, which is the thing that starts making the bottle. And because everyone was focused on making sanitizers, um, the grocers bought up all the preforms. So we were out <laughs> for a week. But besides that, we were able to keep everything. I think we missed one order and it was by, you know, about three days. So we, we kind of came out pretty much unscathed. And what do you what do you know now about your business? Is your is your business it's bigger because of 2020. Is it different than it would have been had there not been a pandemic? You know, I don't think so. Um, You know, similarly to what kind of the tech companies will say is the trends were already moving this way. It just accelerated them. Mm -hmm. Uh, It certainly made it easier for us because we had been losing money, you know, every month since we started. And we had finally kind of turned the corner to where we had achieved enough scale to where we can cover all of our costs and start to invest in in additional growth. So I think it just accelerated um, what we were doing. But, you know, we haven't launched any new products. We haven't changed our formulas. We haven't really done anything different. We've just gone all in on it. And do you have reason to believe that the growth that you experienced last year is going to be sustained? when people go back to coffee houses? You know, I don't think they're gonna. Um, You know, we're of course trying to stay close to the trends, but you know, pre-COVID, people didn't really know there were great affordable options to consume cold brew at home. And over the last year, I think consumer behaviors changed. And unless you're going to the office every day and you're a unique consumer that really doesn't care at all about cost, I think we're going to maintain, you know, 90% of the people that switch to consuming at home are just going to keep buying big bottles uh, mm-hmm. to, to take with them to work or to fill up their thermos on their way if they do, in fact, go back into the office. Other than that million dollars that you two raised for the shot idea, have you, have, do you have other in, investors? Yeah, we did raise about an additional million dollars um, after that. And through kind of the pandemic, there was... You know, everyone panicked, of course, the first month, everyone thought they were going to fail. And so, uh, you know, our board and and mentors said, if you have the ability to go raise money, you should just to be on the safe side. Mm. And so we did go back to our investors and say, hey, we think this is working. We think we're poised. Um, But with growth comes a need for cash to finance inventory. Can you guys kind of help us out? And so we did um, kind of since that 2017 fundraise kind of through two, three rounds of small um, fundraisers, we did raise about another million dollars. And is that kind of money that you can have uh, in the bank right now? Or are you do you need that to to keep the operation going? Yeah, we certainly needed it to keep the operation going. Um, But now with kind of what the SBA has been um, offering for small businesses, we're now looking at using traditional bank financing as I mentioned, we had been so, you know, unprofitable in the past that the only way we could um, kind of sustain the business was through 
individual investors for equity, mm-hmm. where now the business is sustainable, where we can use kind of debt to finance our working capital, because that's that's really the constraint now is buying bottles, buying caps, buying labels, um, you know, and making sure that we can just kind of keep the lights on through through that. How much bigger do you have to get to to really feel comfortable and to really be turning a profit consistently? <laughs> can you get there? You know, yeah, I think I think we can. Um, you know, we're as I mentioned, we're only in a thousand stores, and there's another twenty thousand to go, and the category is growing really fast, and it's it's big. So I think we have a lot of runway. Um, you know, we'd like to double. We've pretty much doubled every year since we started, and we would like to do that again this year. That's that's kind of our plan. And once we get there, um, we're going to be in a very sustainable position where I don't think we're going to have any uh, issues moving forward. How much of the business is, happens on Amazon right now? What percentage? You know, it used to be 90% for the first several years. Now we're closer to 50-50. Um, this year, 2021, I expect it to you know, fall below 30% if, if everything happens the way that we're expecting it to. Uh, career entrepreneur, born entrepreneur that you are, do you think about selling this business or do you love this business? You know, I love manufacturing and the more and more I see us producing more units, the more I enjoy watching it. Um, you know, Andrew and my favorite show and we're going to kick back after a hard day, have a beer. We're watching how it's made (laughs) and we just love factories and being able to employ people. Um, so, you know, certainly can't say never, um, but I think we're, we're pretty happy and we want to see how big this thing can go. That's great. That's great. And, and any temptation, especially as the brand grows and is more recognizable, to get back into that single serve space? Is there no, sort of an ego no, bit involved nope. in that? You know, after the launch of the, the, the shots that failed, the ego has been destroyed. And and so there is none to be had. I think, you know, the exciting thing is we have a product that people love. And, um, you know, as cool as it is to have a a badge brand, um, we love just making big bottles of coffee and, and, and putting them out. So I don't foresee us doing it. Now, we have had people ask us to license our brand and put it on cans. So there may be something like that that could happen, but from us to do it ourselves, um, competing with Coke and Pepsi is just a, a bit too tall of an order for us. Yeah, uh, maybe one day. But but meanwhile, you wanted so much to be an entrepreneur. You're doing it. You're you you've got a business. You're doing exactly what you set out to do. Is it everything you thought it was going to be? How do you feel about entrepreneurship now that you're in it? You know, it is so much harder than anyone could ever understand. Now, we did not do ourselves a favor in picking coffee, which is the hardest category, and beverage, which was extremely hard, and then making it have a short shelf life. So we certainly didn't do ourselves any favors by picking this extremely difficult category. Um, But it's great. I mean, I go to work when I want, which is, of course, all the time. Um, (laughs) But I get to kind of do what I want. I don't have a boss. Um, You know, I get to... I'm doing a photo shoot and it's fun. And I get to be proud that I built something. And, you know, seeing people consume our product, going to a stranger's fridge or their house and seeing my product in there is extremely rewarding. Um, So it's certainly everything I thought more. Great. Well, 
Thanks for uh, staying awake for us. We appreciate that. <laughs> Thanks for all the coffee drinking. And congrats on all the success. It's really fun to, to see the business grow right here in town. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. Well, Busy Coffee is available locally at Lund's, Kowalski's, Cub. You can get all of the store listings. And, of course, they're growing quickly by going to their website, which is busycoffee.com. So, you know, the whole time I'm listening to Alex talk, I'm thinking about what a classic tale of entrepreneurship this is. For some more perspective on that, let's go back to the classroom with the University of St. Thomas Schultz School of Entrepreneurship. John McVeigh is an associate professor there and has a lot of thoughts on whether we are born entrepreneurs or can learn to be entrepreneurs and can you teach this in school? So curious what you think, John. Well, thanks a lot. I love this interview you just did. Uh, Alex's uh, story of Busy Coffee is just a fabulous one. It's not just because I, I remember him actually being one of our students uh, a number of years ago. And yeah, I mean, it's interesting his response to, uh, you know, can entrepreneurship be taught? And I think one of the things we need to remember is it depends what we think education is. If we think teaching is about ramming a series of facts and knowledge into the heads of students, and then testing them and drilling them and sending them out in the world with the information to be a success, then I would say, of course, we cannot do that <laughs> in the area of entrepreneurship, right? There's right. not a body of knowledge that we can just uh, sort of inject into your head and guarantee success. In my view, we shouldn't have been teaching that way anyway in any field. 40 years ago, uh, my high school physics teacher told me, my job is not to teach you what to think. My job is to teach you how to think. Mm -hmm. And I think that's how we need to approach entrepreneurship. And I think Alex's story is a fabulous uh, illustration of the importance of critical thinking. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, I've got undergraduate students myself, my own kids, as well as the students I teach. And I try to tell them, you know, 90% of what you learn will become irrelevant <laughs> in 10 years, five years these days after you graduate. But what doesn't become irrelevant is how you think critical thinking skills, and those are learned, but they're learned through experience in the classroom, and they're learned by, uh, by a broadening your mind. And there are two aspects of Alex's story that just you know jump off the page. One is how he uses imagination and the role of imagination in hmm. critical thinking. What do you mean by that? Well, imagination, sometimes we get this mixed up. We talk about imagination, and uh, the philosopher John Dewey, Dewey really differentiated carefully between imagination and the imaginary. Okay. And we get those mixed up, right? The imaginary is really about, you know, unicorns and goblins. <laughs> and it's fantasy. It's mm -hmm. the stuff, it starts in our heads, it grows in our heads, and it never leaves our heads. It's really untethered to the real world. That is not imagination. That's Im that is the imaginary. Okay. Imagination is what Alex is doing. It's starting immersing yourself in the real concrete world and saying, how is the world? What is it? And then what could it be in light of the way things are? Hmm. Right? That's imagination. And then testing those ideas back in the real world to seeing if you can create a new future. So that is the role of imagination. Anybody can say, you know, I like cold coffee. Mm -hmm. But what Alex had to do was 
he didn't dream that up in his basement or at two o'clock in the morning, uh, you know, having some fantasy. He had to look at the world, the way the market is, the way people are drinking coffee and say, how could they do that differently? How would they feel about it? And he also was very methodical about saying we want something that's going to be searchable. We want something that you can package and sell on the Internet. I mean, that doesn't that feels more methodical than imagination. And imagination is, and John Dewey would say, imagination is an act of construction. It's a practical act of construction Mm -hmm. by careful, and it's fueled by carefully observing the world and picking the world apart and then thinking, how could it be different in the future? Hmm. But it is fueled by the real world and careful methodical study of the real world. Then it is a dramatic rehearsal of, what it could be in the future. And then, of course, you have to test your imagination. Otherwise, it's just fantasy. Right. Otherwise, it's just dreams and unicorns. And that's not the process of imagination in critical thinking when we're trying to actually solve things. So I think it's just a beautiful illustration of what imagination really is in this world. It's critical, it's powerful, but it's also immersed in the world and it's part of the world. It's not just dreams. Right, right. I think we spend a lot of time, and I know Alex did early on, trying to think of the big idea. You know, I want to be a business (laughs) owner. What am I going to invent? What am I going to sell? But you think it's it's not just about that big idea. No, and I love the fact that he said he wastes a great deal of time doing that because he realizes in retrospect that that's really not the solution. Uh, The people who succeed don't succeed because they've got a different idea, an idea no one's ever thought of. Probably millions of people have thought the future is cold coffee, right? Mm -hmm. Probably millions of people around the world have thought that. That is a far cry from understanding how you build a sustainable business to succeed at cold coffee. You have to love rigorous inquiry. You have to be able to listen and empathize with others. And you have to enjoy more and more problems coming. And You know, the way I summarize it to my students is really we see these people, they love the journey more than the destination and more than even the idea of the destination. Yeah. They love to go along this journey and he would choose this journey rather than earning a fortune working for someone else. He would rather have this journey of continuous problem solving and proving the world wrong. Right. Uh, to to stability and and security. You got to be willing to live in your parents' house well into you your twenties or thirties to make it happen. Such great perspective, and I think it's it's good good questions for any would be entrepreneur to ask themselves before they go down this road and quit the six figure job. Absolutely. John McVeigh, thank you so much for joining us as always. And thank you to our sponsor, the University of St. Thomas Schultz School of Entrepreneurship. Thank you for listening to By All Means. You can learn more about the show by going to tcbmag.com slash by all means. make by all means and we've got some all-stars thanks to our audio engineer tom Ferliti. digital support is ricky hannigan and dan nepo thanks to the university of st thomas senior media relations manager vanita sakar and associate dean of the schultz school of entrepreneurship laura dunham for all their help our theme music is by song finch hope you enjoyed by all means (laughs) 